Seeing David's bravery and motive for the glory of God, Jonathan's soul is immediately connected with David's. This is the 38th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel as we move into chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, the first five verses, 1 through 5, 1 Samuel chapter 18. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him no more go home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews in chapter 8 speaks to us of the covenant beginning in verse 6 through verse 13, the end of the chapter. By the same spirit, the apostle to the Hebrews says this, But now hath he, speaking of Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. David is now Israel's hero. Armed with an unmovable conviction of faith in God, and by using all of his skills in the weapons of war, anticipating a violent fight, a violent confrontation against the Philistine enemy Goliath, David is now in Israel's sight the deliverer of the nation and a friend of the people. And by this single action, the single action of faith, David becomes the dominion man, a leader among men, a leader among leaders. And this act of faith gives some of Saul's people more faith. In fact, this act of faith 
gains the attention of another valiant man of faith, Saul's son, Jonathan. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan's reaction to David's testimony before Saul is curious, since it seems to have come immediately after David's talk with Saul. And yet, we have to ask, why was the soul of Jonathan, as he was in the earshot of David speaking to Saul, his father, why was the soul of Jonathan's soul knit to the soul of David? What prompted such a, a strong reaction, almost, almost an immediate reaction. Once Jonathan heard David's words, his soul immediately was knit with the soul of David. What prompted such a strong reaction by Saul's son? Was it simply because David had slain Goliath, because he killed Goliath and cut off his head? Or perhaps because David took the head of the giant to Jerusalem in a bold move against the enemies of God, declaring Israel's new position as a military force a military force to be reckoned with. Well, consider this strong possibility. David had just delivered Israel from possible slavery, a possible, unimaginable slavery by the Philistines by single-handedly slaying the giant Goliath. But that was not all. Not only did he do this alone, he did this. David didn't just do this alone. It, It was the way he did it. He did it with passionate bravery. Not just bravery. He wasn't just brave. He was passionate in his bravery. How dare you, you uncircumcised Philistine, defy the armies of the living God. Passionate bravery. Declaring that his motive was single. It was for the glory of God and of course for the liberation of his beloved nation Israel. Jonathan too was a passionate man. He was a passionate warrior, brave young man, whose motive was, as David's, the glory of God and the liberation of his beloved Israel. In other words, these men were already knit together in spirit because they held to the same position and the very same world and life view. That is what knits Christians together. All of this was the work of God, the Holy Spirit. David and Jonathan thought alike. And because they thought alike, they acted alike. And this is what made their hearts knit together as one. No one had to tell them to trust God. No one had to tell them to act in God's behalf for the glory of God. No one had to tell them to work for the building of the kingdom and to glorify His name. No one had to move them to confront the enemy. They were ready at a moment's notice to confront the enemy wherever the enemy was. It was the Spirit of God That was at work. It was the Spirit of God that motivated them to self-sacrifice because that's what they were doing. They were putting them in harm's way. They put themselves in harm's way for the glory of God. No one taught them to do this. It was God who taught them to do this. And they put themselves in harm's way knowing that God would deliver them. And this, this new nature of the regenerate man is proven through action. These men were men of action and these men had proven their conversion by their passion and their action. The new birth is not shown, it is not evident, it is not testified in mere contemplation. 
nor is it evident in mere debate. It is shown in what people do, how they live and function within everyday life, and especially when the trials and the temptations of life come their way. Now the Hebrew word God uses to show the closeness of these two men is the word which means to be in league with, as in to be strongly knit together or to be joined together as one. Verse 1 also states that this closeness was so strong that the scripture says that Jonathan loved David in the same way that he loved himself. And this is the very same love relationship that Abraham had with his son Isaac and Isaac with Rebekah. Genesis 22, 2 and 24, 67, notice. And he said, Now take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into his mother's Sarah's house, into her tent, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, the word is also used as a commandment, not only as being knit together in such an intimate fashion, but it is used as a commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 10. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all of his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. So that when we love God, we are thinking God's thoughts after him and he will cause us by his spirit to act in the way that Jonathan or David would act in the face of the enemy. Now this relationship, this love relationship, is similar to the relationship that Jesus has with his elect. Consider Christ's priestly prayer in John 17. In his prayer, he couples the love and oneness to describe his relationship with God and his people. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 17 of John 17, which I believe is the true Lord's Prayer. He says this, Speaking to his Father, God himself, God speaking to God, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through me, through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Notice the league here, the oneness. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. He continues, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Notice the oneness. David and Jonathan were one in league with one another. This idea of spiritual intimacy is also found in the commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Now, the next verse of 1 Samuel 18 might insinuate that as a result of Jonathan's love for David, Saul brings him into his royal house in a very intimate fashion. More more than just, you know, remember that David was now the sweet psalmist, more than just the sweet psalmist that David was to Saul, but now it seems, at least it's intimated, it seems as if, and I emphasize seems as if, Saul is bringing him into his own house to be intimately associated with David and looking at him and reflecting upon him as his own son. But knowing the nature of Saul, and his narcissistic pride, the opposite may be more accurate. Saul not only needed David to soothe his troubled soul with the psaltery, he wanted to keep him close, since he was now looked upon as Israel's deliverer. David had now taken, in Saul's mind, and in reality, David had now taken the place of Saul as the hope and deliverer of Israel, and Saul could not tolerate such an insult, nor could he tolerate such a threat to his position of power, because men like Saul will do almost anything to hold on to power. They will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will murder. They will manufacture all kinds of wickedness in order to hold on to power. We see this in the world today. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what Saul's motivation was. Keep my enemy close. And what we need to remember about a man like Saul is that he is all about himself. He is a power-hungry tyrant who refused to have anyone usurp his position as king. And as a result, David moves into Saul's house as a close family member, ready to be given Saul's daughter as a reward for killing Goliath. But there was a motive behind the madness. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. You stay with me. I need to keep an eye on you. And as a result of Jonathan's love for David, that passion that these 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 men both shared explosive passion. The two men covenant together. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Now this was no ordinary covenant agreement. Remember who Jonathan is. He is royalty. Saul is king, Jonathan is prince. This covenant comes from existing royalty to future royalty. It seems as if this action takes place almost immediately or at least as soon as possible. Jonathan sees who David is and he wastes no time in striking this covenant. So why? Why the haste? Why make this covenant? Apparently... Jonathan already knew that his father will be removed as king and David will be king according to God's specific choosing. In fact, Jonathan may even know that his father was already removed in theory, not so much in practicality, but in theory by Samuel and Saul would not be well pleased that another was going to take his place. Moreover, Jonathan also knew something about his father. He was not blind to his father's wickedness. He knew that his father was a tyrannical murderer who made up his own laws since at one point he was even 
ready and willing to kill his own son Jonathan for disobeying a frivolous law, a frivolous statute. This seems to be the case according to his testimony in 1 Samuel 20 when he warned David about his father's plan to kill him. He knew his father's intention. He knew why Saul wanted David out of the picture. And as we shall see, not only did he want him out of the picture when David was actually out of the picture, he hunted the man. And this is what wicked tyrants do. They hunt the man. They hunt the church. Because the church is the only formidable foe against tyranny. And so, in order to advance God's will, Jonathan wastes no time in making a league with David. So what was the substance? What was the substance of this covenant? And why was a formal covenant thing necessary? Well, covenanting was and still is a very serious agreement between various parties. A covenant can be between two or more people and even between nations. All covenants, if they are to be biblically binding, have God as one of the parties involved. Every covenant binds each of the party members to either do something or not to do something, depending on the stipulation set forth in the oath, because that's what a covenant is. It's an oath before God. This is the case with the most common of all covenants, the marriage covenant, which includes, and I stress this, parental oversight and the family stability of the children. The parental oversight of the children and the family stability. Since the earthly covenant of marriage symbolizes the heavenly covenant between Christ and his church, Christ and his bride, it is one of the most important covenants that the human race has ever known. Destroy the marriage covenant. Destroy the family stability. Destroy the parental oversight of the child. And the culture collapses. And this is why tyrants target the family. If they can remove the family from being the foundation of culture, they can resume that position themselves. The marriage covenant is not simply an oath between two people who have expressed their love one to another. It is an agreement that binds each party individually and as a unit to God as well. Frederick Stahl observes, he says this, The purpose of marriage is the complete personal union of both spouses upon the foundation of the sexual union to which procreation is linked. It therefore has a goal outside of itself, the begetting of children. But its first and sole independent goal lies in itself the union of the spouses. The juristic concept of marriage is the union of both sexes in a complete life and legal community. The marriage covenant, which includes the discipling of children through the education process, is a covenantly bound institution. Let me repeat that. The marriage covenant, which includes the discipling of children through the education process by the family, is a covenantly bound institution. In other words, no part of the family institution is allowed to depart from the clear commandments of Scripture. Since the education of the Christian child is a covenant obligation, it is a violation of the marriage covenant to substitute the parental education of the child with an education philosophy that's not sanctioned by Scripture. Now, in the suzerain covenant, 
which is a covenant where the greater suzerain or king, the suzerain simply means king, forges the conditions of the covenant so that the lesser party must agree to it. In other words, the king sets the conditions that are to be met because the king is the overseer. He is the conqueror. God is the conqueror. God is the king. God is the suzerain. And he is the one and the only one that dictates the stipulations of the covenant. We cannot say, well, wait a minute. I don't really agree. I don't like that part. I don't like that part of the covenant. I like the salvation part. Thank you. Die for me. Bleed for me. Go to hell for me and resurrect and take me to heaven. I love that part. But you know that other part, I don't know. I'm not really into that part. It's all or nothing. It's a stipulation which God had set and you either abide by it or you do not. And so every institution, whether it's the family, the individual, the church, the state, every institution is bound by covenant to obey God because He is the King. You're not the King. I'm not the King. The White House certainly is not King. God is King. For example, When God made a covenant with Adam, he clearly set the conditions, subdue, take dominion, eat of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if Adam obeyed, he would not die and most likely he would be allowed to eat from the tree of of life. If he passed the test, and it was a test that God gave him, which is what that covenant was, he would be blessed of God. But if he rebelled, Then he would have to face the negative sanctions of the covenant that God had placed, whereby Adam and all of his posterity would spiritually die and finally physically die and remain alienated from God unless God intervened. They would be dead to God. Going forward, we see God making covenants with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David as well. Over and over, God placed covenant obligations upon the nation of Israel, which they constantly broke to their own destruction. Not only does God covenantly bind Israel, He binds all nations, because all nations are to submit to the kingly authority of that suzerain. He binds all nations by His law, so that whenever a nation violates His law, I don't care if they say they're Buddhist, or they're Muslim, they're Shinto, or whatever, it is God who is king, not Buddha, not Mohammed, it is God who is king. And once their nation, any nation, violates God's law, They are called covenant breakers because they are covenantly obligated to God. Well, all of these covenants are important. The most important covenant is the one that was made in the Godhead before the world was created. Think not that God did not strike a covenant within the Godhead before he had covenanting stipulations given to man. This was the covenant of grace within the Godhead, within the Godhead. Within the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, God sets forth the covenant stipulations where He would elect a people for Himself and give them as a bride to His only begotten Son to be sanctified by the Spirit. In other words, the covenant stated it this way. In order to marry His virgin bride, the Son had to become man, take upon the sin of His bride in order to sanctify her, live perfectly obedient to the law of God, and then sacrifice Himself to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God that was to be placed upon Him for His bride. Now, if that was fulfilled, the Son would not only put death to death by His own death for the redeemed, He would gain the hand of His resurrected, sanctified virgin bride. He would then be given the entire world as His inheritance according to Psalm 2. 
He will own the world. And He does own the world. And He is rightly the King of the nations. Now, when striking a covenant, the actual phrase used is to cut a covenant. Because these were blood oaths. These were considered blood oaths. You would cut a covenant. You would shed blood. There would be a, a, a blood ties. We see this clearly during the Passover supper when the Christ clearly compared his shed blood to the new covenant. Notice Luke 22, 20. Likewise also after supper, the cup saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Here's the covenant which is shed for you. Now the word testament, the word covenant are the same words. And so Jonathan and David make this very special agreement between each other before God. So what was the nature of that covenant? What was the nature of this covenant oath? Well, the next verse gives us a clear indication in verse 4. Notice, and Jonathan, as a result of this covenant, stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even his sword and his bow and even his girdle. Now, by this act, Jonathan is transferring his royal and legal authority to David. He's giving him everything. This was symbolic. A deliberate and public transference of the right to rule on the throne by Jonathan to David. He's relinquishing his inheritance. Seeing the Lord's anointing hand upon David and having the same passion for the honor of the Lord, Jonathan gives up his own birthright and gives it to David, knowing that David was the chosen of God. Now, no doubt, this was a grievous slight against Saul, since Saul desperately wanted to maintain a, a tribal legacy for the, for the wicked Benjamites. Saul wanted to establish a dynasty with himself as the foundation. And this is what sinful man seeks. They want to establish their own dynasty of wealth and power and influence, and they will do anything to bring it to pass, even murder. Now, there are several lessons to take notice of. Consider the historical significance, the character significance, the practical significance, and the eschatological significance. Historical, characteristic, practical, and eschatological. Consider the historical significance. Well, God had chosen Israel to be his people within the confines of history so that they might be a representation of all of God's chosen people. The fact that Christ makes mention of David is proof that these accounts are not only accurate but significant. They're real accounts. David is not just a metaphor. He's a real man with a real history really accomplishing the things that he accomplished. But note the character, not so much of David, but of Jonathan. Here we have the heir of the throne of Israel, who is no slouch. He was a man of war as much as David. He had defeated the Philistines almost single-handedly with his armor-bearer. And yet, by the grace of God, he sees something greater in David. And seeing this, not wanting anything for himself... He strips himself of his office. Moreover, he strips himself of his royal future. That's astonishing. This is a man of self-sacrificial character. 
This is a man who puts the honor of God and the advancement of his kingdom above his own ambitions. And not only is Jonathan not like his father, he is the exact opposite of his father. We also see the motive behind trusting David. It was love. He loved him as his own soul. He understood how the man thought because he thought the same way. And this was a powerful motivation. Two men thinking God's thoughts after him and acting accordingly for the glory of God and for the, for the liberation of God's people. This was a very powerful motivation. But it becomes more powerful when God is the object of the passion. These men had a passion for God. Would to God we would have passion for God. We leave church on Sunday and then we go about our business and we do this and we do that. And the fire burns out so quickly after the Lord's Day. It's astonishing. And you wonder why God's wrath is not kindled against the church, against the Christians, against the nation. The third lesson is of a practical nature. When we see someone that God has truly touched, we ought to do everything we can, which is in our power, to advance that individual's position. This is what mothers and fathers are to do whenever they observe in one of their little ones faith and passion and bravery, honesty and cunning before God. They are to do everything. They are to sacrifice everything. Everything. When they see something in their little one that says passion for God, love of the brethren, honor and glory, everything, sell it all. If I would have just one child that would do valiantly like David or valiantly like like Deborah or Jonathan. So when you see in your child the glimmer, you do everything you can to advance that. As Jonathan sacrificed himself and transferred his legal royal authority to David, so too must we do likewise for our children and anyone else that we see seeking to passionately serve the Lord. This is what the Presbytery is to be doing in the churches today. They are to be looking out among their congregation to see who has a passion for the Christ so that they could do all in their power to groom that individual for the ministry, knowing that one day they will have to transfer their authority, their legal power to someone else. And it is the most frustrating thing in the ministry to see that there are not many who live up to that passion. So we must do all that we can for our children and anyone else that we see having passion to serve the Lord. And this is what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians who seem to have forgotten that the children do not belong to them. It belongs to the Lord. The children are the heritage of the Lord and that He works through many generations. We need to be thinking throughout the generations, not just our children, our grandchildren, but our great-great-grandchildren. But if we think that Jesus is coming at any moment, then we're not going to build for the future. Notice what he says. St. Corinthians twelve fourteen. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. What does that even mean? 
We are to lay up. We are to, we are to give whatever it is. Whatever God has given us, we are to give it back. Give it to the children. And this is what it means to leave an inheritance to our children. Proverbs 13.22 Solomon understood this. Because that's what David was about. He understood. When Jonathan transferred his legal authority and power to David, David is going to now transfer his legal power and authority to Solomon, who is going to rule in his stead. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Notice the generations, the children's children. And this kind of an inheritance is an inheritance of integrity and godly virtue. It's not about, it's not about money. A godly character is the goal of child rearing, not academics, not career. All of that perishes with the using. It's a godly character, integrity, passion for Christ. Solomon again counsels and tells us this in Proverbs 22.1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. But what do we have today? Silver and gold and great riches are rather to be chosen than the fear of the Lord. And it gives me no pleasure to say these things, but this is just the way it is. Because if this was not the way it is, and if I am mistaken, then we would see a difference in the culture. What parents should focus upon in their children is not so much respectability, but godliness. You know, sometimes we just want our children to be respectable. That's just moralism. Respectability is good. We want our children to be respectable. But what we should be striving for? Godliness. Devotion. Develop godliness and respectability will be the natural result. Finally, there is an eschatological or a symbolical reality of Jonathan's action. In an open show of support, which seemed to be a ceremonial anointing, Jonathan gives David a number of items. Number one, first, he gives David his royal robe. It's a royal robe. It's his, it's his covering to show that he is part of royalty. Then he gives the rest of his garments so David would have a complete wardrobe of royalty. Second, Jonathan then gives David his sword. Now this was, this was also incomprehensible, an incredible gift, since swords were very difficult to come by during the days under the Philistine domination because the Philistines had confiscated all the weapons of warfare. So a sword was very, very valuable. Nevertheless, Jonathan gives David his weapon of war. Third, he gives David his bow and his girdle. Now the possession of a bow in Scripture symbolizes one who is a mighty hunter and it is used to identify the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 45. Notice Psalm 45, verse 3 and following. Gird up thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. So giving this bow was a, a great gift. Symbolized that David is the mighty hunter. John picks up on this idea in Revelation chapter 6. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. 
And speaking of Christ, he says, And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Jonathan expected David to continue in his conquering. Just as we expect our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His promise, to continue in His victorious conquest in time and in history during the New Testament age. Finally, fourthly, Jonathan gives up his girdle. Now this seems to be a priestly, even a prophetic, or at least some garment that bears some holy symbology. The girdle in Scripture symbolizes a total covering, and it refers to a man's character as either good or evil. So if you're if you have a, a girdle, you're either you're either gird with evil or you're gird with good. In Aaron's case, it was a holy linen girdle. Notice Leviticus 16:4. He shall put on the holy linen coat. And he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle. So it was probably a linen girdle that Jonathan had. And with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. It was a holy garment. He's giving Jonathan this this holy garment that he was blessed with. In Elijah's case... His girdle was leather, a covering of animal skin, perhaps signifying that a sacrificial animal was slain for his redemption. We see this in 2 Kings 1.8. And they answered him, he was an hairy man, and girded with a girdle of leather about his loins, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. In Christ's case, his girdle was gold. Notice Revelation 1.13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. In Psalm 109, God condemns the wicked and declares that they are to be clothed with a garment of cursing and a girdle of the same continuity, a girdle of shame. We see this in Psalm 109, verse 18 and 19. As he clothed himself with cursing, like as with his garment, so let it come into his bowels like water, and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. But Jonathan's girdle was righteous. It was a priestly, prophetic, holy garment. And he gives it. He gives it. Strips himself of everything that he had. And he gives it to David. So who does Jonathan represent eschatologically? Well, it should be painfully obvious that he represents God, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, who is David? We saw that that David is a representation of the Lord himself. So can both represent the same individual? Can Jonathan represent the Lord Jesus Christ, who strips himself of his garments and gives it to the Lord Jesus Christ? How does that all work? Well, in order to understand this, we have to go back to the book of Judges, where we saw how Samson represented both the Lord Jesus, the Nazarite war priest, and the nation of Israel. Depending on the situation, this is the same situation that we have here in 1 Samuel 18. David, as a representation of the Lord, is receiving his glorious robes from God in almost the same way as when Solomon is coronated by his father David, symbolizing God ordaining God. Because both David and Solomon represented God, God the Father, God the Son. Jonathan's transference of his royal legal power to David is also symbolic of Christ's transference of royal power and legal authority to the church. So Jonathan, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, stripping himself and giving everything to the church. 
depicted by David, who represents Israel. It seems to be augmented by the fact that Jonathan dies in battle against the Philistines in the same way that Samson dies in a battle against the Philistines. In the same way that Samson makes way for Samuel's rule, Jonathan makes way for David's rule. Now consider the transference of royal power and legal authority from Christ to the church. First, Christ confers to the church his regenerating, sanctifying, empowering spirit, which is the same as Jonathan giving David his royal priestly garment, his sword, the sword of the spirit, his girdle, his priestly prophetic loins are now covered with the priestly garment. The saints are now the royal nation and the kingdom of priests. Peter explains this. He says, but ye, 1 Peter 2, 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Notice, David is now a royal figure, but also given the holy linen garment. He's a royal priest before the people of God, as well as a prophet. We see this in the Psalms. A holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him. Notice our task to show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. John concurs. Notice what he says in the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1, 4 and following. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in Revelation 5 and Revelation 20, and they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Kings and priests. Jonathan also gives David his weapons of war. And again, again, the spiritual weapons of war, the sword of the Spirit, these are the spiritual weapons of the church. Paul explains this to the church at Ephesus. Take upon yourself the whole armor of God. I would say that Jonathan gave his entire armor to David. It did not consist of what Saul had given David, because David refused that worldview. But Jonathan's armor, his worldview was biblical. Take upon you the whole armor of God. Leave nothing out so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. Notice your loins girt about the linen, the, the girdle, the priestly girdle of truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But above all, take the shield of faith, wherein ye shall be able to quench all the fiery dogs of the wicked. And then you take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spear which Jonathan gave, which is the most precious item, because it would be that weapon that would defeat the enemies of God, which is the word of God which Jonathan would give David. 
But what all these things symbolized is the authority which is transferred from Christ to the church in the same way that Jonathan transfers his royal power to David. Note what the Lord tells his saints. And I I just love this verse. And there's so much to be said about this one verse, Luke 10, verse 19. Notice how the Lord begins. He says, behold. In other words, open your eyes, wake up, wake up, I'm talking to you, behold. I give unto you, there's the grace, I give to you, Power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Serpents and scorpions, the wicked people of the earth. Men are like vipers. Men have the poison of asps under their tongue. We have the power by the grace of God, by the word of God, and by the sanctifying power of His Spirit to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt us. Do you believe that? Will you act upon that? Jonathan did, David did, David will. This was to be efficacious for the entire elect of God at Pentecost when they would get the spirit of power. But ye shall receive power. This is what God is telling them. I give you power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Notice the uttermost part of the earth. And so once again, within these historical types and figures, we have declared unto us by the scriptures the gospel of the kingdom. Next we shall see David in the house of Saul as a very cunning and wise young man who is about to be tested in a very great manner. We will explore that next when we return to our study in 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.